after years and years of mounting pressure, Washington will reportedly retire its team nickname today. And though a new name will not be announced just yet due to pending trademark issues, it's obviously a big win for those who've been calling for a name change to the organization for years. Nick, I'll start with you. What was your reaction to this? It's about damn time. And we'll go a little history and then get contemporary because I think that helps explain why this was so long overdue. The first time this term was ever used in an American newspaper was when it was, when it was listed as essentially a killed Native American scalp and the requisite reward that went with it. This team, Washington, back when they were Boston, the name was changed to this. Why? Because George Preston Marshall was their owner and he was a notorious racist. Once George Preston Marshall moved the team to Washington, D.C., and it was the only team south of the Mason-Dixon line in the, in, in the NFL, he added to the team's fight song, Fight for Old Dixie. George Preston Marshall famously said he would integrate his team when the Harlem Globetrotters integrated theirs. And the only reason Washington actually signed a black football player 16 years after the rest of the league did was because the federal government threatened to make them move out of a federally funded stadium. And so once they were forced to, due to financial pressure, they signed a black player, which you look at what has happened right now, Dan Snyder has been forced to essentially, due to financial pressure exerted by a lot of entities, most notably FedEx, he is being forced to change the team name. So while I'm glad it has happened, I do not give Daniel Snyder any credit. Now, I am not calling Daniel Snyder a bigot or a racist or any of those things, but he was overwhelmingly and incomprehensibly stubborn on this point. Seven years ago, seven years ago, when he was asked about it, he said he will never change the name. It's that simple. Write it in all caps, never. And he is only now changing the name because his bottom line demands that he does. So I'm glad it's happening. It was a blight on American sports that one of our major professional teams nickname was a dictionary defined racial slur. But I, this is not one where I'm comfortable patting Washington on the back for doing something they should have done a generation or two ago, Kevin Wilds. Yeah, I think this is, uh, it's hard to be super optimistic about this, like you said, Nick, since it had such a, uh, a terrible history. And at the same time, I'm not going to be terribly pessimistic about it either, because this has been a long time coming, and this has been a fight for, that has been going on for decades in the sports world. Um, I went to, uh, I'm going to give a special shout out to not only everyone who has been working on changing this, but sp specifically the two groups that have given me this list here that I'm about to read off. This is Corey Collins did a great article for Sporting News, and even he cited changethemascot.org. It's, um, it's a great resource, and it's a grassroots organization that has been push pushing for changing mascots and team names. So in 1969, activists at Dartmouth changed their name, and I'm going to run through the list and see where we are today. University of Oklahoma in 1970 changed their mascot. Marquette dropped their mascot. Stanford and the University of Massachusetts changed their name in 1972. I, my mom went to the University of Massachusetts. I didn't even know they weren't always the Minutemen. 
uh, Dickinson State, Syracuse, Nick, your universe, your alma mater, St. Bonaventure, Southern Oregon, Siena College, Eastern Michigan, St. John's, Miami, Ohio, Seattle University, Louisiana, Monroe, Arkansas State, and North Dakota, in addition to several minor league teams and high schools all around the country. Greg, I think this is a, a sign of progress. It's been a long time coming, but progress is happening. To that last point, I, I want to jump right there, the progress. Um, I'm not going to get into the history. I'm not going to get into all the, the personal um, ties, but I will speak to progress. When you look at our nation and you look at the climate of our nation, it is about moving forward, being aware, being conscious, um, recognizing uh, the other's plight, whatever that means, whoever the other may be. And I, I, I emphasize that because this is for all of us involved. If we're going to be a better nation, a better human race uh, collectively, these things have to be considered. You have to recognize someone else's point of view. Um, the name, whether it means something to one person, it may mean something different to uh, the actual ethnic group or someone else involved. And so we have to consider these things because this is where we are as a nation. This is the temperature that we're experiencing um, and I think this will be the remaining climate moving forward. Um, and, and kudos again, like you said, Nick, uh, to FedEx stepping up and really applying pressure to uh, Daniel Snyder. And Wilds and you and Greg both allude to, I think, the idea of does it stop here or are there other team names that should be changed? I, I think it muddies the water a bit if we don't acknowledge on the front end, as we've said, Washington's football team was in its own special category because their team name was an actual dictionary-defined slur. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't at least consider what does the Native community think of the Cleveland Indians, my hometown Kansas City Chiefs, the Atlanta Braves, and the Florida Seminoles. And so I think the Seminole tribe in Florida has been very vocal, at least what I've read, that the vast majority of members of that tribe feel like it is a partnership with Florida State. They want the name to remain. They feel like it is a tribute, in which case, perfect. Leave the name like that is their decision to me to make. I think with the Braves and the Chiefs, it's a little grayer. I think they both should. It's an embarrassment that at Chiefs games we still do the tomahawk chop and some of that more cartoonish Native American imagery. That absolutely should change, even if those names can remain. But while I don't find the Cleveland Indians' name as offensive as what Washington's has been, because it's not a slur, I am forced, when I think about this, to say, should a team mascot be a people? And the answer to that is... To me, obviously, no. It's not just removing Chief Wahoo, the offensive symbolism associated with that team. It's also, if there were, I'm Italian. If Oklahoma City was getting a basketball team and they said, hey, we thought about it, we're going to call them the OKC Italians. And Seattle's getting one too, and they're going to be the Seattle Koreans. We would say, well, that's ridiculous. Even if you're like, no, 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 we're going to pay tribute. It's going to be, we would say, you can't name your team after a people. And so I do think when it comes to the Cleveland Indians, that discussion has to be had. It is not 
nearly as awful. What Washington's team name had been was awful due to the history, due to who named them, all of it. Cleveland's to me is not in that category, but it is a discussion where we should listen to the native community and say, are you cool with it? If you're not, or if you are, but you would like them to change some of the things like Chief Wahoo, move in that direction, or if that's a name that should be changed as well, we should listen to them just like we should listen to them on the Chiefs or the Braves also, Jenna. And again, guys, after mounting pressure from corporate sponsors, from fans, from players themselves, as you all said so well, this is progress, this is a step forward, and so we should be optimistic as we look ahead. All right, we're going to take a little break now, change gears. Coming up on the other side, the Lakers lose another star. What does this mean for their title chances now? This is First Things First. <laughs> Let's get to the, we knew that about you, to the Sixers shakeup. Head coach Brett Brown revealed this little nugget yesterday, said he's shaking things up on the roster, playing Ben Simmons exclusively at power forward during practices down in Orlando. So with Shake Milton, the starting point guard, once the season resumes. Nick, you surprised the Sixers are tweaking the roster heading into this restart? Well, I'm moderately surprised. And let me say on the front end, this is probably the right move. This is probably what they needed to do, and Shake Milton kind of burst onto the scene when he had a near 40-point game when they were playing the, the allegedly great defense of the Clippers, and he just kept hitting threes on them in the second half. And it, you were trying to find out fits. But this does, to me, put a real exclamation point on the failures of Ben Simmons and a guy everybody likes but they're GM Elton Brand. If you thought there was any chance at all that Ben Simmons' game was going to stay so stagnant that you just have to do what some folks were calling for you to do a couple years ago, which is move him to that dunker spot, move him to the four, and have a different point guard come in, then you can't, in the same offseason, sign Al Horford and let Jimmy Butler walk. If this was even a 20% possibility, give Jimmy the five years he wanted. Don't do the sign-and-trade involving Josh Richardson. Don't bring in Al Horford and run with a starting lineup of Shake Milton or maybe assign Seth Curry this offseason if you know you have an, uh, an opening at point guard. Hey, Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid. But now they're in a spot, Broussard, where they have four guys on max or near max contracts, and you can never, there can't be a single minute played where they're all four on the court at the same time if Ben's now gonna be your power forward. And so, to me, Chris, it's, uh, it's disappointing that Ben didn't evolve, and it's also a bit of an indictment on the front office that they didn't see this potentially coming this offseason when they went and signed Al Horford, Broussard. Well, it's certainly disappointing that Ben just has essentially refused to shoot. I know he took a couple more threes than he has in the past, but for the most part, he's not shooting the ball. So on paper, this looks good, right? Shake Milton was great in, in, in place of Ben Simmons when Ben was out with the back injury. Over his last seven games, he averaged 19 points on 60% shooting from three. Yep. So you look at it on paper, you say, hey, Simmons is great as a, as a guy playing down low on the post. I love him down there, but here's the problem. 
when they have typically had Simmons down, as you call it, the dunker spot, Nick, what, is, what has happened? Joel Embiid, the seven-footer, has been pushed out to the three-point line. And we were showing the clip earlier where they had a, a Sixers practice, and that's exactly what was happening. Brett Brown was telling Joel Embiid, get out here at the three-point line. I hate that, okay? Every once in a while, yeah, it's fine for Embiid to step out and shoot the three. But if he's a, a steady diet of being at the three-point line, he might as well be 6'4 instead of 7 feet tall. You nullify his greatest strength, which is he's probably the best big man down low score that we have left in the mm -hmm. league. So if this is old-school basketball, and this reeks of a little bit of desperation, a change like this this late in the season, if they want to go old-school and play Simmons and Embiid, around the paint they don't have to both be down low one can be on the elbow but if you want to play both of them around the paint and then have Tobias Harris and shake Milton as your shooters and if you want to win Josh Richardson I guess he hadn't shot it well from three this year but they you got your shooters around your two bigs play that way play old school run when you can push it when you can and in the half court go old school that will make you unique Teams don't know how to deal with that nowadays and see what that gets you. But if you're going to push Embiid out to the three-point line because Simmons is near the basket, then it's not going to work. I thought it was interesting that you said it, it reeks of desperation because that's what I kind of feel like too. But I think this is the right move. We all know that the Sixers are like a car with duct tape on the window. If you've ever had that, Nick, and I know you grew up with a beautiful cars, but if you ever had to put some duct tape on your window, it works surprisingly well. But you know it's not the long-term solution. And I think Shea could work. We saw him hang 39 on the Clippers and Patrick Beverly, where I promised I would never say a negative thing about Patrick Beverly. But he did put 39 on the Clippers. He hit 13 straight threes over three games. So he tied the NBA record. And we know, like, look, now we've got a traditional point guard. And I know everyone's just like, no, no, we've talked about this, Broussard. They're 29 and 2 at home. It's less schematic and more of like a mentality. Like, yeah, maybe. I think that's a valid point. But, Nick, they've only got a 5% chance at winning the title. Brett Brown's job, it can go either way if they get knocked out. I say shake it up. No pun intended. I know we've got it on the bar. Shake it up and give it a shot. And I think these first eight games, we're going to see if they're going to go this way or not. It, again, and that's why I also think these eight games are going to be kind of boring because it's just going to be a lot of experimentation from the Sixers. Listen, I get that they are trying to shake the snow globe to a degree and see if they can get a better result. But And part of this probably is Brett Brown hitting the emergency parachute because he knows if they go out in the first, maybe even the second round, he could be gone. But everything, yeah. Broussard, you and Wilds described works so much better if Jimmy Butler is there instead of Josh Richardson, you describe them being able to play old school basketball with no Al Horford. Like at this point, your four year, 107 million, I think it was, deal with Al Horford looks like total wasted money. And the, the Sixers, I think, fail to recognize this. They have one potentially transcendent player on their team. It's Embiid. And their big struggle is can we show it? is when Embiid is out there without Simmons or Horford, they are spectacular. Plus 14 points in their net rating. 
If he is out there with either one of them or with both of them, they are the definition of a league average team. And so, and I think yeah. part of that is because when he is out there without either one of them, to Broussard's point, he is down on the block doing what he is built to do. When he's out there with Horford, he, he breaks away from the rim more. When he's out there with Simmons, if Simmons isn't playing out on top of the key, he breaks away from the rim more. So I understand why Philly is trying to press this emergency button, but you would like the franchise to have had some foresight this summer, know that this was a possibility, not bring in another big if there was a chance Ben Simmons was going to be moved to that power forward spot, Jenna. And I, I echo the point. The season on the line, Brett Brown's job, maybe Nelson Brand's job on the line uh, for this restart. Let's get back to some football where you'll never guess who's got Tom Brady as a top five quarterback in the league. I mean, besides Wilds and Giselle, of course. Next on First Things First. Sticking with the Chiefs, even after signing the aforementioned Mahomes to a $500 million deal. Still sounds like oh, Dr. Boy. Evil. KC's bank apparently not broken. There's yet more money to go around, and here's how we know. Yesterday, Chiefs locked up Pro Bowl defensive tackle Chris Jones. Four years, $85 million with $60 million guaranteed. That prompted Mahomes to tweet, and y'all thought we couldn't. Hashtag run it back. Which Chris Jones then replied to with big facts. Nick, how big of a deal is this in the Chiefs' pursuit of becoming the next dynasty? They're getting all their ducks back in a row. Oh, this is a big deal, and this is thrilling. <laughs> I don't know how Brett Beach <laughs> and the front office did it, but they are bringing, quite literally, nearly everyone back. Kendall Fuller, the only significant contributor who's gone. I thought Chris Jones was going to be traded before the draft because I didn't think they were going to be able to make the money work. Why is this such a big deal? I, two reasons. First of all, Chris Jones is the second best defensive tackle in the NFL, full stop. Aaron Donald is in a class by himself. And then if you look at sacks, quarterback pressures, the PFF grades, any of the advanced numbers, Chris Jones is better than every defensive tackle in football not named Aaron Donald. They just brought him back. Here's the other reason why it's critical. They now have their entire core of elite players locked up for at least the next two seasons. Show it. That's the seven best players on the team. They are contracted through at least 2021, which means the core of the team is going to have a chance to win not one, not two, but three consecutive Super Bowls, which has never been done. And NFL history says if you're going to win a bunch, you better do it in a in bunches. The Patriots, we say they won six over 20 years, but they won three and four, took a decade off, then won three and five. And so, Greg, I, I think Chris Jones was the best player on the defense last year. I think he's one of the most underrated nationally players in football. And to get him back on a four-year deal is a massive coup for the defending Super Bowl champion Chiefs. It is a massive coup, and I agree with everything you said. But even more importantly, it brings that team together in ways that one cannot even imagine. To have a quarterback get signed for a half a billion dollars and then to come turn around and sign who 
we all knew was an integral and marquee part of that, that the success of that team, specifically on the defensive side of the ball. And you make an effort to say, no, we're going to we're going to retain you and we're going to give you a large piece of this pie. That sends a message to everybody in that locker room. And they understand that, look, these guys are for us. So we got to do this again. And when our turn comes, hopefully we get the opportunity that everybody else is getting. And that's exciting as a player. Forget everything else. They're going to bring their nucleus back. They're going to they're going to keep rolling this thing, especially if they can keep finding ways to retain players like Chris Jones. Hey, Nick. Carpe diem. I, I think he got a fair point. Seize the day. Try to make this dynasty happen. I don't think it's the right move. Neither does Bill Belichick, who currently has the dynasty championship belt around his waist while he's filming that Subway commercial. But look, the first rule of uh, having a dynasty is like Fight Club. Don't talk about the dynasty. The second rule is don't talk about the dynasty. And the third rule is don't lock people into long-term guaranteed contracts. That's what Bill Belichick did. Uh, you guys want to go another route. Let's talk about uh, Chris Jones's tweets here. He's not listening to the first rule of Bill Belichick Fight Club, which is, oh, let's go. The dynasty continues. You guys don't even have a dynasty yet. I don't know. What, what are we talking about? Unless it's a Madden season he's in the middle of. Then he continues. Run it, sack nation, run it back. I'm, I'm happy that he got his money. I love you, Chiefs. Great. Promise to bring you more championship rings and a defensive player of the year. You know what? I believe in speaking into existence. The championship rings promise I like to. But Nick... I, I dug up an old clip. Not many people have seen this clip. I was like, you know what? This sounds familiar, this championship ring stock. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but if we could play it, Hubs, we'll get Nick's reaction to this. But we also know you three kings came down here to win championships. Not one, championships. Not two. LeBron, tell us about that. Not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven. It's, it's, it's a little scene video, Nick. I don't know if you think uh, if you've ever seen it or your reaction to it. And do you think the Chiefs are headed down the same path as the uh, Heat, who went on to win seven championships? Okay, so listen, LeBron obviously didn't anticipate Dwayne Wade's knee was going to give out on him. I give you credit for pulling up the one public misstep of LeBron's entire career. That's a well-done knife to my back. Uh, they did go to the championship round, though, four times and won two of them. And in the NFL, oh, that would assuredly be considered a dynasty. But you mentioned the Patriots. And, so, oh, the Patriots don't they, – they never sign guys this type of deal. Here's kind of the underrated or – under discussed part of that because the Patriots don't actually draft that well they don't often draft star players or players that turn in to star players they did it with Brady they did it with Gronk and there's you go up and down the list not a bunch of other guys that turned into stars Kelsey Hill uh, Patrick Mahomes Chris Jones all those guys drafted by the Chiefs by this front, not all by this front office, some by this front office, and then extended by this front office. So there's, oh, there's more than one, one way to build a dynasty. The Patriots, because they had so many misses in the draft and they had the stability of Brady, their, their mantra of find other teams' undervalued, distressed assets, bring them in cheaply, worked great for them. The Chiefs' philosophy of how about we just hit on our draft picks and then keep those players Greg, that's actually 
really what your Packers tried to do. And I know your Packers didn't turn into a dynasty, but you guys won the Super Bowl, and then the very next year were a dominant team at 15-1. and one. So I, I think there are multiple ways to try to do this, and extending your best players and finding the cap room to do so is always a good option in the NFL. And the whole, the whole league was hoping the Chiefs couldn't come to an agreement with Chris Jones. Unfortunately for everyone else, they did. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's take a turn, head to Dallas, where Jack Prescott's future could be all but done with no long-term deal on the horizon. That's next. First things first. Moving on, talk some Patriots now. All right, though everyone's focused on Cam Newton replacing the GOAT Tom Brady oh, yeah. up in New England, some have forgotten that Cam is stepping into an ideal situation where he'll be coached by a GOAT in Bill Belichick, but Cam seems to have had concerns about his chemistry with his new coach. Take a listen. My agent hit me. I was, you know, no cap. I was working out. And he was like, hey, man, you know, we just got an interest from a team. I'm like, okay, cool, who? And he was like, New England. I said, <laughs> I said, hold on. Like, how's, how's me and Belichick gonna mesh? You know what I'm saying? Because that was the first thing I thought. Because it's like perception. Yeah. Like, but I think his perception of Belichick is not that. There is no, like, how is it going to work for me? All he want to do is put you in a place to succeed. Yeah. And I'm happy to see it. Ooh, Odell of the Patriots. Sign All right, up. Nick. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start with you. What do you think? How do you think Cam Newton and Bill Belichick are going to mesh? Listen, as is often the case... My pal Odell Beckham Jr. only speaks the truth. Now, occasionally, he speaks a little too much truth. He's a little too honest, and he gets him in trouble. But Odell is a lot of things. He ain't a liar, and he nailed this, which is why I think Cam and Belichick are going to mesh beautifully. Bill Belichick wants to win. He does not care what you do when you're not in the building. He does not care what you wear to the building or what you wear home from the building. He wants to win. And last year, the quarterback position was a hindrance on them winning. And throughout Belichick's entire coaching career with the Patriots, he's really had one game where he was able to go into it game planning and say, hey, what can we do with our quarterback's legs? It was a nationally televised game when Brady was suspended for one of the cheating scandals the Patriots were involved in. I can't remember which. And which Jacoby Brissett yeah. started. And it was on national television, I think against the Texans on a Thursday night. And all of a sudden, Patriots doing all these fancy QB runs. And they win that football game in Jacoby Brissett's first career start. And you started to see, or you saw for the first time, a whole different layer of offense Belichick could run and Josh McDaniels could run because Belichick hated so much when those offenses were run against him. He always talks about the problems a mobile quarterback brings to a defense, forces you out of man-to-man -man defense, a lot of things you don't want to have to deal with. So, I, Wilds, I believe Belichick and Cam are going to get along great. I don't. Do they listen yeah. to the same music? Do they go to the same nightclubs? Do they vacation on the same beaches? No. But none of that matters. They both desperately want to win, and they're both terrible losers. And I actually think that'll make them somewhat kindred spirits, Wilds. I think it works out great.
I, I do too. I, just one correction. Belichick also listens to a lot of Future, so I, I think you're wrong there. They do listen to the same music. Look, yeah. I think they fit perfectly, Nick, just like that Cam Newton Fanatics jersey I sent you. Nice and snug, size medium, headed your way, buddy. It's going to be a perfect fit. I specifically think there's three reasons, and we're going to put up uh, some quote boards here. Their view of teamwork, they hate to lose, and one wild card thing just to be, you know, lighten the mood a little bit. First up, their view of teamwork. The first one is Bill Belichick's view of teamwork. He says, listen, it takes everybody doing their job. One guy can't move the ball. One guy can't stop a team. You got to be working together. Great. Let's go over to Cam. What does Cam say? Hey, we need a group of 11 people doing one thing, not one guy doing 11 things. For all this idea that Cam uh, is an individual and he, and, he, and, he, and he walks to the beat of his own drum, sure, but this guy is the consummate team player. Second reason, they hate to lose. Take a listen. We're, we're, we're obviously disappointed that we didn't win. I mean, I don't know. I said that right off the bat. We're disappointed in the results. What else do you want me to say? Did you see anything that you didn't expect today? They just played better than us. I don't know what you want me to say. They made better more plays than us. And that's what it come down to. But Cam was eviscerated for that, Nick, for no reason when Belichick does the same thing after a regular season loss, never mind the Super Bowl. And, of course, they have their iconic outfits, uh, which, you know, <laughs> also, like, the last video with Cam and his Montclair outfit, like, bravo to Cam Stylist, just doing a fantastic job. <laughs> but, Nick, here's the biggest reason, and actually, Brian, I'll throw it to you. Both of these guys are all-time great players, and they are both being doubted in the media on if they still have it. Belichick's like, oh, can he do it without Brady? And people are saying that Cam is washed up. They are both the most motivated quarterback and coach in the entire league. I think they will fit perfectly. You know, I agree with both of you guys. And I've always wondered, because I hear a lot of negative things around Cam, I'm wondering, what did he do so bad to people to make them think that he's just such a bad guy because of the way he dressed, because he does a celebration deal after he scores because he points after he gets a first down. I'll tell you this, and Andy Reid wasn't a big celebration guy, but he had no issue with Terrell Owens doing a touchdown yeah. celebration after he scored a touchdown. And I guarantee you, Bill Belichick, after Cam Newton scores his first touchdown up there in New England, will have absolutely no problem with Cam doing a Superman deal, handing the ball to someone in the stands, doing all the different things he does after the first down. As long as Cam is producing on the field, Bill Belichick, you know, he's going to love this guy because he wants to win. He's going to do everything that he can to be a winner. And just like you mentioned, Kevin, he is motivated. He has a chip on his shoulder, and he's hungry. He's hunting his next contract. He's going out there trying to prove everyone wrong. So to me, this is the uh, perfect match. You're right. Bill Belichick has to prove that he can win without Tom Brady. Cam Newton has to prove that he can be a quality quarterback in this league uh, again uh, in his career. And I think that's going to be a great combination of two people that, that actually want to go out there and win football games, Nick. And while we're talking so much about the indefinable and intangible and personalities and relationships, on the actual football field, 
Cam solves a massive problem for the Patriots. The Patriots the last couple years have been a miserable goal line offense. Not miserable in comparison to what they were historically, miserable in comparison to the Bills, miserable in comparison to the Colts, to just average goal line offenses. The Patriots haven't been an elite red zone or goal line offense since 2017. Cam is the most prolific goal line rusher in the NFL. Only he's got four fewer rushing touchdowns than any other player in the league than Marshawn Lynch, I think, has the most since 2011, and he has the second most uh, red zone touchdowns or goal-to-go -to -go touchdowns of any player in the league behind only Marshawn Lynch. That was a huge problem for them last year. On the field, Cam solves that. That will make Belichick like him more than anything that has to do with uh, the whether or not he's going to care about the celebrations. He's going to help the Patriots Nick, win, which is all Belichick's going to care about. Nick, are you, are you worried about Cam's durability here? We'll talk about it next block. Hey, we'll talk about that later. To be discussed. <laughs> okay. We'll take a turn. Talk winners I just don't and want losers him flipping into the end zone. a long-term deal in Dallas. Next, first things first. He'll be fine. Foot's fine. Shoulder's fine. I want fine. to hand the ball off. I don't want him, you know.